You're listening to Cinepunked. I'm your host, Robert J. E. Simpson. This episode, the Alex Cox Film School. For film fans of a certain age, the name Alex Cox will resonate. He's a man who's worked both in front of and behind the cinema screen, and who has challenged our understanding of the language of film itself, educating the masses he could easily be amongst our pantheon of legitimate cinepunks. As a director, he helmed a series of striking films, including Repo Man, Sid and Nancy, and Straight to Hell. As a writer, his work includes a draft of the screenplay for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And as a broadcaster, his role and host of Movie Drome opened up UK audiences to a world of challenging and bizarre cinema via the eclectic nature of late-night BBC television. In recent years, Cox has moved into micro-budgeting and crowdfunding for his feature films. As a published author, he has penned volumes about his own work on the 1960s cult TV series The Prisoner and a book aimed at film students, Alex Cox's Introduction to Film, A Director's Perspective. It is this last volume that is the focus of this conversation, recorded following a lecture about the book given by Alex at the Belfast Book Festival. Some years ago, Alex Cox had moved from the UK to the United States and had been teaching screenwriting and filmmaking at the University of Colorado Boulder. You join us as we converse backstage. How on earth did you end up in academia for that brief period or however long it was? Up until the economic crash of 2008, I had been able to survive as a filmmaker. And then um, and there was a certain amount of revenue coming in from the DVDs and, and, and the, cause some of the films that I've made, I've actually owned the rights to. And so I was able to like both make income from them and do little payouts to the to the, uh, the profit participants, especially on Straight to Hell. Uh-huh. Straight to Hell was really quite, was quite a good um, income generator for a while. But then after the economic crash, the, um, the, uh, the income dried up. And my wife said, you've got to get a real job, you know. And so I figured out that the only things I was, suited, I was suitable to do would be to work in a petrol station or to be a university professor. And you were living out in the States anyway, yeah? Yes, and in Oregon, where I live, um, you're not allowed to pump your own petrol. <laughs> the, um, it's a job creation scheme. Uh-huh. But in Oregon, um, you have to have, they have gas station attendants. Right. And so I was, and, the, and that was the only two jobs I could think of doing. Okay. It was gas station attendant or university professor. So I took into academia? Yeah. Is that, I suppose um, your work as a filmmaker must have been hugely beneficial to them in a, in a film department? I think it was good because the school that I was at was largely experimental. Experimental film is very big at certain American universities and, and, and Boulder, Colorado was one of them, so they didn't really have a narrative person. Right. Um, there, was a, there was a narrative guy called Roger Carter who taught camera, um, but apart from him there was nobody with any narrative experience and nobody who worked with actors, and so I filled a gap. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I think most of the students wanted to do narrative, right. you know, and so, um, so yeah, so I went, I went and taught there for four years, and, and I loved the students, but they were marvellous. Okay, and, and, and coming into that, that, you had a background in, in your, your, under, your undergraduate was in law, and then you left that to do film radio television. I have a law degree from Oxford, I have a uh, radio, film and television certificate from the University of Bristol. Okay. And an MA in, oh, MFA in film from UCLA. Okay, so I mean, the idea of film theory was something you were very, very familiar with anyway. It's not just someone who's coming as a practitioner who's gone. Yeah, because my first year at UCLA was actually in critical studies and then I switched to production. Right, okay. And, and how, 
I mean, what, what sort of balance is there, or, or did you find going into that, that university environment um, as an educator rather than as a student? What's, what's the sort of tension like between theory and practice? Is there one? No, I don't think there are. I mean, well, I think a really abstruse theory, if you read one of those giant books, you yeah. know, like one of those intro to film books like Bordwell, I mean, they're impenetrable. Um, and the guys have never been on a film set, so they don't really know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. So they verbiage it over and, and come up with a whole bunch of theory and stuff which doesn't really apply in the, in the practical world of making a film. Um, and so that was really why I thought I had to write this little book, just because the, I, didn't, I couldn't find a textbook that I thought was appropriate, you know. And the thing is, the students don't read those books. No. Even if they buy them, they don't no, read they them. No, they don't read them. I usually don't even buy them. Yeah. No, I, mean, I, I came through um, film studies here in Belfast, yeah. so yeah. I mean, some of, a lot of what you were saying today resonated quite strongly with me. Yeah. Um, not maybe so much in sort of, not, not my lethargy, but kind of my peers' lethargy. Yeah. You know, the, you know they're not interested in things like silent movies. Yeah. Um, I was just sent down the hall. Like the one thing I remember being told, I used to sit in a student consultative thing, so as an intermediary between staff and students yeah. to get feedback. And students were so pleased whenever we started showing colour films. But that's interesting because I'm not very interested in silent films either. I mean, I think that I think the cinema really comes into its own in 1929 when when the jazz singing, mm. whatever it was, it was the first talking whenever that happened. Um, I mean, I did show. I showed bits of some silent films, um, uh, Caligari and Metropolis, mm-hmm. um, but and I like I love Nosferatu, you know, um, uh, and the, and and and, and um, the first Brunel. Uh-huh. Um, so I did show some silent films, but really I think that the, that the cinema begins when it, when when sound is added, uh-huh. and it, and it's interesting that, that unlike when when color came in. There were still black and white films for a long time, still or forever. Um, but when sound came in, that was it. There were no more silent films. So yeah. I think that, that sound is an integral part of the cinema, really. It's essential. Do you think it's essential? I mean, that, it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, yeah. I shot a, an experimental thing last year, and we deliberately shot it as a silent film. Yeah. Because I think the temptation was, no, it's so easy to get bogged down in dialogue. Can we tell a story without using sound? Well, you could do it without dialogue, but what about the sound, though? I mean, you could do a film that has a soundtrack. Well, I mean, we had a soundtrack, but in that sense of a 19, sort of, a 19-teens mm-hmm. production where there's, there's a score, mm-hmm. um, which is, is being worked on at the moment, but it's, it's still an experimental thing. It should be separate from the image itself, in a way. You know, yeah. I still don't think it's, in, yeah. it's essential. But that, that's me as trying yeah. to experiment and find my voice, yeah. you know. And that's just my opinion. Yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, other people would say differently. Other people are like, very into silent film, you know. I mean, I had a, I, we had um, one professor there uh, who specialised in early cinema, you know, and, and silent film. Um, but that's just my opinion: is that the cinema begins when when, when sound comes in. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, but Shyamalan Dalu is a masterpiece, and it has no sound. So <laughs> there's always rules. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the book came out in January, if I'm right. Yes, I think so. You left teaching when? The previous, um, the previous May. So you haven't had a chance then to actually see how students respond to the book itself? I don't know it? if anybody used, I don't know if anybody has used it as a textbook yet. I mean, I wish they would. I'd be very interested to know how, how it went. Because uh-huh. obviously, I mean, like you're, you're drawing on much more, um, 
as you said, as a practitioner, someone who actually makes films, who has an understanding of how a set works. Yeah. And from what you were saying today, I mean, some of those topics, things like even fair use, yeah. which is something I'm constantly talking yeah, to people yeah. about, is they just kind of think, you know, they can use everything, but they can't. They can if they're clever about it. Um, yeah. But those are really important lessons to learn yeah. as a filmmaker. Yeah. Um, so I would be interested to see how a student would adapt to that, particularly a student who maybe has spent time with a more traditional film theory-based text. Yeah. But you haven't had that. Yeah. That I don't know yet. if anybody's assigned it. I mean, if they, I think if anybody's assigned it, because I say if, if, if I mean, I say in the introduction, if you're interested in the, uh, you know, if you, if you want to do this and you're, and you're having trouble finding the, um, some of the clips, because some of the films that I reference are fairly hard to find, mm -hmm. then contact me. Okay. You know, and I'll help you find, uh, i help you source the material, you know, like Mate Affair by Francesco Rossi is very hard to find. Uh -huh. um, you can find La Torrent, you know, but you have to know yeah. how to find La Torrent, you know, and um, no one's contacted me yet, so I don't know who's <laughs> We'll see. Uh, looking through it there downstairs, I noticed there's no still imagery in it at all, which I thought was rather unusual for, I mean, even for the likes of Boardwell, there are plenty of images there. Yeah. Um, I think of the Francis, the, the Truffaut Hitchcock book. Yeah. Like it's packed with images, a way of explaining what's going on. I, I, was, there, was that a choice you made, or is that? No, a... that was a choice the publisher made. I mean, yeah, the only images in the entire book are the cover and a picture of frame sizes and a picture of um, lens dimensions. Mm -hmm. Other than that, there's no illustration at all, which is kind of interesting in a way. I mean, I, I, maybe the publisher. Um, was just concerned about fair use. Yeah. The problem about fair use or fair dealing is you have to be able to defend it. Yeah. And if a rights holder comes after you, you know, with all guns blazing, it's a, it's a nightmare. You know, even if you're in the right, you still have to hire lawyer up. You know, and, and that, nobody wants to do that. You know, so. But I think it's kind of interesting. It hasn't. I mean, if I had been the publisher, I would have included images. Mm -hmm. But the fact that there aren't, if it's a film book without any images, is kind of interesting in itself. Yeah, although not uncommon, particularly not in, in academic circles. Um, normally, there's a, I mean, normally there's a selection of images, though, isn't there? I can't remember oh, a film book that doesn't have any. Oh, there's a few. I mean, I have plenty in the house that really, yeah, that sort of would, would shy away from them, and I know yeah. I've contributed to stuff where there's been issues about rights and stuff, and why not? Yeah. they want to take that risk, but I think there is a fear. I mean, you pointed out. The difference between the U.S. legislation and the U.K. Yeah, and also fair use is easier. I mean, fair use is clearer um, than fair dealing in Europe, but you still have to defend it. The real thing is that it's not, you know, um, the big media corporations have no respect for fair use at all, and they'll still come after you with lawyers, even if you're in the right. And then you have to lawyer up and defend yourself, and it's a nightmare yeah. uh, that nobody wants to deal with. So, so I understand perhaps why they didn't put the images in. But it's quite interesting because you have. As an alternative, you know, you've suggested clips that people should look at, which will, of course, have the sound as well, and having made the argument that a film isn't a film without that soundtrack. Yeah. Maybe that is the right way to see it, rather than looking at some disconnected images yeah. on a page. And in any case, we could include, I mean, there's plenty of films that are in the public domain that we could have included, and we could have included images from my films. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, it's a question for the publisher. Yeah. But I'm not complaining because I like the book very much. I think it looks very elegant without images, so I don't mind. Yeah, no, it's just, it's just one of those kind of curious things. I mean, I thought today's um, kind of lecture was quite interesting. I mean, it did remind me a lot of that film studies environment, but with a sense of there's an outcome for this. Uh, I mean, what's your kind of bias then towards educating someone? I mean, what's, what, 
are you trying to tell someone this is how to make a film or you guide them in how to make a film or in, in terms of uh, an end product because you talk about things like advertising and, and trailers and, and, and sort of that marketing and things because that's all part of the process isn't it that's all part of the process of filmmaking and they need to be aware of it but it's not really a book for, not, not necessarily a book for filmmakers I mean it is also a book if you're just interested in films mm -hmm. and you want to kind of I mean suppose you, that you like films but look at the way television is now, it's very hard to access foreign language material, you know. Um, and so what if you're a person who's like, like you're an autodidact and you just like, you, you've seen some movies on television, you like them, you want to know more, but there isn't a repertory theatre in your vicinity, you know. Um, and there's all this stuff available on the internet, but how do you know what you should be accessing? Um, I mean, almost everything I mentioned, you can probably find it online. Mm. Um, but, but, but how do you know to find it unless you know what the title is and the name of the director and, and, and how to look for it, you know? So I think that's, that's the idea, is that it could be a text for a school, but it could also be a text for an individual that just wants to educate themselves about film. Mm -hmm. And it's, it is still a curated sense of like, this, these are my choices of films that I think you should look at. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I try and do, but I mean, I do try, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I try and do stuff that, that you know, that, that that is generally read upon as very good, like, you know, Wizard of Oz or 2001 or Bicycle Thieves, mm -hmm. you know. And then throw in stuff like Toby Dammit and the Mate Affair, which is harder to find, but, but perhaps even more brilliant. You know? That's funny, I was looking back through the list of the movie room seasons that, you know, you were involved with back yeah. in the 80s and 90s, some of which I vaguely remember. Yeah. Um, so you're probably partly responsible for my early film education. Good, well that was, the, I, thought it, I thought it was kind of, about, sort of a film literacy programme. Yeah. I mean, have you ever thought about kind of going back to, to that kind of, um, those choices that were made back then and sort of re-evaluating them for now? I guess because there is a kind of film school thing within that. Mm -hmm. but there's a list of films there that if you look at, you will take something away from, and they're at times quite diverse. You know, I, I, um, I think I had an impression that they were all kind of cult films in that sense of, you know, offbeat horror, science fiction stuff, but they're not, yeah. there's actually much more accessible. I, it was really, the, I, mean, so, I mean, a very small number of the films we actually bought in, essentially some Italian westerns, mm -hmm. uh, The Big Silence, Django, uh, Requiescant, I, I, persuade, I was able to persuade the BBC to buy them or license them. But everything else was stuff that they already had. It was like they had a big bin of films that they didn't know what to do with, you know, like the long hair of death and, and stuff like that. And they just didn't know what to do with it. And so they could then, then, then there was this slot on Sunday night where they could put all of that stuff and Diva and um, uh, uh, whatever else, you know, uh, right and sell block 11. You know, mm -hmm. um, and you know, and, and create a frame for it. You know, even though the frame was entirely eclectic, mm. you know, and you could call them cult films, but then they weren't all cult films because Terminator was a massive commercial success. You know, and so it was all just stuff they had under license, <laughs> all got garbage into that Sunday night uh, time slot, um, but in a good way. Yeah, in a good way. And the other good thing about it, and, that, and what was unique about it, was that I was able. I didn't have to pretend everything was great. You know, I can say the film you're going to watch tonight is kind of rubbish, but there's this great performance by so-and-so, or there's a really interesting moment when the production design does this, or when the editing does that, and so we can talk about the mise-en-scene, mm -hmm. you know? Um, 
like you would in, a, in, a, in, in an academic situation. You might screen a film and say, listen, this film's got a lot of problems, but I'm showing it to you for this reason. It, it is kind of interesting because there is this sort of, um, maybe not by intent, but through the circumstances of your life, you know, there is this kind of constant film educational role that you've fulfilled. Um, whether it be, to, you know, on, on broadcast on national TV to kind of go, like, these are some films, this is some good stuff to look in. Yeah. And then to go on to eventually producing a book that says, this, yeah. this is a bit about how you watch a film. I, I find that quite interesting for someone who's a practitioner who maybe didn't intend to go down that path, or did you? No, I never did. I never did. And in fact, it's funny because I was talking to somebody last week, I was doing an interview with somebody last week, and they asked me what, who I had been at UCLA with, you know, what mm. filmmakers I've been at UCLA with. And I said, oh, it was a very rich time of all these people who became directors and editors and cinematographers. And as I, saw, I listed them, I realized, well, no, none of them are working anymore. They're all, <laughs> they're all in academia. Every one of them is teaching at the University of Miami or UCLA or, or New York or they're all in academia. Wow. And I thought then, I'm glad I'm not, you know. I mean, I don't, I like the process, I liked, I thought meeting the students was extremely valuable and meeting a generation that wasn't my own was incredibly valuable and incredibly beneficial and invigorating for me and I hope for them. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, but I just thought, I, I'm so glad I'm back in my day job. Yeah. You know, because uh, it's too hard to do both. Do you think it's something you'll return to at some point? No. No, that's it. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> no more academia. No, not unless I can be entirely in charge. Uh -huh. Not unless I can be the chairman of the department. I will, <laughs> I will choose the curriculum. Uh -huh. I will choose the other faculty members. I will be the boss. You know, because I am the fairy on top of the Christmas tree. See, I, I find that fascinating because, again, listening to you today, I, I find that quite refreshing that you had this sense of practicalities that certainly my experience here is often missing. And, you know, you, you meet students and students haven't a clue. You know, they're alienated. They're, they're, as you say, you know, they're bombarded with all those theories at the start, those big yeah. words yeah. and subtitles, yeah. and they haven't a clue unless they've maybe seen something before and they're a little bit more open. Yeah. Um, so that's, I mean, I think that's a shame. I think, you know, you should do more. Well, I, um, think, I mean, Werner Herzog has set up his own film school in Los Angeles. Uh -huh. um, I don't know who funds it. You yeah. know? Um, and, it's, and also the thing is that the good thing about where I was, when I was teaching at, at CU, it was a state university, so it wasn't like a private school. It was, it's expensive to go to university anyway, mm. but it wasn't a private school. It wasn't like excessively expensive, or it wasn't the most expensive school you could go to. Because sometimes private schools are just a rip-off. You know? mm. Whereas at least if you're a, a state university or a research university, you've got like, there's a certain legitimacy to it. You know? yeah. The danger is that Werner Herzog school of bullshit and give me your money now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, the other thing I kind of want to touch on, uh, without taking up much more of your time, um, is this idea of fair use, uh, which I think is a fascinating concept, and it's, it's one that's not properly understood by most people working within the media, I don't think. Yeah. Um, but also in terms of your own work, because you've been quite open, I think, in, in, in terms of what you give to people. Um, what's the thinking behind that, in terms of your own stuff? How do you mean? Uh, well, I mean, I was flicking through your website earlier on today, and I mean, you, you think like your first book that never got published is, yeah. is published there. Yeah, all the screen, put all the screenplays on. And your screenplays and things. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that, that, that offers a, 
and listening to you chatting to someone in the queue there is like you know you're very easy to find online yeah you're very approachable yeah. i couldn't understand what that guy was saying it's so easy to find me online it's so easy when people, send, yeah, <laughs> when people send you an email you're very hard to find you can, you're a wanker i'm not hard to find at all. And, and, and almost nobody's hard to find you can find almost anybody you can yeah. find contact information for them in fact it's a, it's extraordinary if you can't find contact information for people on the internet but i think i think what's surprising about you perhaps and that a lot of filmmakers who certainly have a reputation, um, is that you are so approachable that you're willing to give of your stuff beyond like someone paying twelve ninety nine for your book. You know, you're like, well, look, here's some more stuff that you can have yeah, a look at, and, yeah. and you don't have to pay me. Yeah. Where does that sense of giving come from? Well, I mean, it's like, I mean, I think money is kind of evil, really. I'm against money, actually. I mean, you need money, yeah. obviously, to survive and to make films with, but I, but, but ideologically, I'm opposed to money. Okay. Definitely against it. Like Che Guevara and Fidel Castro, you know, they were at one point they were thinking that well, the next assignment is to get rid of money. You know, we haven't quite got there yet. But one day the revolution one day will, <laughs> will, will, will triumph, and then we'll get rid of money too. Is that a reaction to living in America? And, and no, kind of that, that are you kidding? America's no worse than, than here or anywhere else. And all everybody's money mad, you know. And, and, yeah. and capital rules the roost. And capital and capitalism has this notion that there can be continual growth. Capitalism depends on non-stop growth. And that leads to people like Elon Musk thinking that, you know, we're going to go live on Mars mm. and mine the astro asteroids and stuff. But you know what? We're not. <laughs> <laughs> we only have one planet. This is the only planet we have. Uh -huh. And, you know, and we're, we're, we're running out of stuff. We're overpopulating it to a, such a drastic extent. Um, it, it, what we, what, the, way the, the way our species is behaving is entirely unsustainable, and, the, and capitalism encourages that, that, that end, the, the idea of endless growth. And also, I must, religion also encourages the idea of endless growth, mm. because we're mining souls, you know, the more souls, the better, you know. Mm. But, but it's not so, you know. Mm. It, it's, it's just a, a refreshing to see into somebody's working process like that. I mean, fair enough, we're not getting every little nuance of it. But you do give away a lot more than, you know, George Lucas is going to give away, <laughs> or the the, well, the think, Richard but, Donner. <laughs> yeah, but the but that's the other thing with Lucas. It's all about um, marketing. Well, he is about capitalism. It's all about selling yeah. stuff. It's, I mean, Lucas Lucas is a very capitalistic filmmaker, yeah. and, and all about the licensing of the toys and stuff like that. And I find that stuff appalling. You know, the idea that that you would want to like harass parents into buying garbage for little kids, little whining kids wanting stuff, you know, I mean, hate that, you know. Mm. Um, that's why it's good to have animals, you know, because animals haven't got into that mode yet. They don't want an extra bed or an extra, <laughs> a new cage, you know. I mean, they're happy with what they've got, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, and as long as you love them, then it's all going to work out, you know. But kids get, get turned into, like, consumers at such an early age, exactly. yeah. you know. And, and it's so unfair because then you lose the pleasure of it all. Uh -huh. um, to root to this back, run into the start again then. So uh, when you kind of presented your students at the start with um, their textbook for the year, which is probably Boardwell. I it was probably Boardwell, yeah. It was, it was always the green one. It was the green <laughs> one, whatever that was, yeah. Um, I mean, did, did you find that they were struggling with a lot of what they were reading? You know what, I never, I never assigned board. I never, even though I set the textbook, I never assigned anything from the textbook. Right. 
yeah. because I just thought it was rubbish. Yeah. You know, and I didn't, and I didn't think they'd bought it anyway. Yeah. You know, and so what I would do was I would just there was a whiteboard down at the front of the lecture theatre, and I would write all these names on the whiteboard, like Francesco Rossi, Francis Coppola, um, uh, Bresson, you know, Renoir. Learn these names. Everything I write on the whiteboard, I'm writing here for a reason. You uh -huh. know, um, I'm not going to test you anything that I haven't that I haven't said in class or written on that board. You know, so all you have to do is pay attention. You know, uh -huh. and so actually, it's kind of an easy class, really, as long as you <laughs> as long as you take lots of notes. You know, <laughs> didn't do the work. Yeah, yeah, and I and I put everything online as well, and I also put everything we had done in class. I put online both on my website and also on the on the course website. Right. So you couldn't fail. Actually, as long as you paid attention, watched the films, um, came to the came to the lectures, wrote all that stuff down and learned it, you know. I know it's a drag to have to do all that because they because going into a film like an intro to film class, uh, more than half the students probably think it's going to be a very easy class. Yeah, you know. Um, but unless they've actually seen a bunch of foreign films already or and and taken a photography course, mm. you know, they're going to have to learn some hard stuff. Yeah, you know, it's not easy. When you, especially because it was easier, perhaps, for us if we, if you and I had been exposed to to foreign films and things before we went to school, then it was easier, you know, mm. um, or played around with cameras and stuff. Then you kind of had an idea of what a wide-angle lens was. And, you know. Yes, why I went to study film. I mean, that yeah. was for me, but I know there were other people who, in my year, who went because it was film and. Everyone likes to watch films for a couple of hours and... Yes, yeah, and so you think it's going to be a breeze, you'll watch some films and you'll get an A. Yeah. But no, it's hard, it's hard because of all the foreign language aspects and the concepts, even though, I mean, because there is still a lot of theory in it, even though it's not a primarily theoretical class, but you still have to understand mise-en-scene and you have to understand the auteur theory, you have to understand what montage is, and montage, although it's a French word meaning editing, but in the film sense, in the English language, means something different. It means it's a specific type of editing that normally conveys the passage of time, mm. you know. And so all of that stuff, and then you have to know who Francesco Rossi was, and you have to know about Fellini, and, mm. and all these dead guys, <laughs> you know. And, and guys, too. I mean, not that I think, I mean, I think that the, the students accepted that, because that's the way it was, but it must be, I don't, I don't think that women had a harder time in the class than men, but I think in a way, um, it must be a bit of a drag for women students that it's so man-centric, mm. but maybe all education is man-centric, you know? I think most of it probably is. Yeah, yeah. history. But that's, I mean, it still creates a problem, I suppose, to try and connect with something. Yeah. Um, and then I suppose the last question is really, um, have you found that teaching and then having written that book has influenced your own filmmaking in any way? Have you taken something back out of that experience back well, in teaching? Definitely, because teaching introduced me to a whole bunch of people in their twenties, um, who otherwise I wouldn't know. Otherwise, I would only know my own generation. Mm. And so, I um, the, the film I made at CU Boulder was made entirely with undergraduates, and uh, and the film that I just did was done with recent graduates of um, from from Colorado and and people who are still enrolled at the University of Arizona. Mm -hmm. so, so I'm working with very young people. I mean, you know, people in their 20s. No, it's not very young, but I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like toddlers. But I mean, but I'm working with a, with a completely different generation, you know. Um, 
who've got a lot of energy and also whose expectations are different because a lot of them know they've been sold a bill of goods, you mm. know, and that their parents had it better than they do, mm. you know, and, and so they're prepared to go for alternatives, you know, and so the idea that, you know, you can make a film without money or at least without salary, mm. you know, as long as it doesn't go on too long, as long as the process, <laughs> it, the process is fun and not abusive, oh. you know, um, it's not so strange to them. Whereas if I was to go to people of my generation and say, hey guys, come to Arizona for a couple of weeks and work for nothing, you know. <laughs> you have to think about that one. <laughs> yeah, it might be harder for them. But, um, but a generation who have diminished expectations and know that everything's stacked against them, you know, in a certain way are more up for it. Sure. You know? well, that's fascinating. Yeah. Very interesting and, and great to see that it has kind of fed back into what you're doing. It's incredibly beneficial, it's incredibly beneficial. I couldn't be doing what I'm doing now if I didn't know a bunch of people in their 20s. The book, Alex Cox's Introduction to Film, uh, Director's Perspective, is published by Camera and is available from all good bookshops. You can find out more about Alex via his blog at alexcoxfilms.wordpress.com. This interview was recorded at the Crescent Art Centre in Belfast. My thanks to Alex Cox, Camera, Crescent Art Centre and the Belfast Book Festival for facilitating the interview. Remember, you can subscribe to the CinePunk podcast via your podcast distributor of choice and you can leave us reviews over at iTunes. To find out more about us and what we do, check out our social media channels. We're on CinePunk.com. You can also search for CinePunk on Facebook and Twitter and CinePunk Film over on Instagram. Until the next time, I've been Robert J.E. Simpson for CinePunk. Thanks for listening.